Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we will be looking at meditation psychology. My guest is Professor Kiran Kumar Salagami, retired professor of psychology at the University of Mysore in India and former chair of the psychology department there. He is also the vice president of the International Transpersonal Association and he is the author of the Psychology of Meditation, a Contextual Approach. Welcome again, Kieran. Thank you very much, Jeff. Yeah. It's a pleasure to be with you. I know you have been practicing meditation and, and researching meditation now for many decades. Mm -hmm. And I understand that some of the early research in which you engaged was to look at, are there negative effects uh, in meditation? Yeah, uh, actually, as I was mentioning in our private conversation, I uh, started doing meditation in 1976 when I was a master's student. I, I did transcendental meditation. Mm -hmm. And uh, after that, I joined uh, a PhD in clinical psychology program and conducted some research on experiences of altered states of consciousness. So my research work involved what personality variables might contribute for a healthy and better integrated personality functioning when once a person starts meditating? And is it possible that some people disintegrate due to meditation and then, uh, you know, develop some kind of uh, severe mental illness or something like that? So that was the basic uh, design of my research with which I conducted the study. I, I mean, I can understand the hypothesis if you look at, for example, the, the use of drugs for creating altered states of consciousness. consciousness. You do get casualties. Yes, yeah. Uh, there, was, there was a lot of research on the negative effects of drugs during that time when I did. That was uh, still the beginning. It, I, uh, I did my work somewhere between 1977 and 81. So just the research was started on these things. And uh, uh, the review of literature then showed that basically people who have undergone trauma during the childhood who have not developed adequate ego strength and uh, those who have weak ego boundaries, you see, are more likely to develop, uh, you know, negative effects through drugs. And though in my own study, uh, I did not uh, come across uh, any person who directly got into a psychotic state because of practicing some yoga or meditation. My other group with which I compared, uh, the, the group of schizophrenics who were emitting, uh, I found that they did, uh, you know, 
earlier had the history of uh, weak ego strength and uh, weak ego boundaries and uh, certain predispositions which uh, led to the schizophrenia mm -hmm. and uh, after I completed my doctoral degree I was able to subject my own data into canonical variate analysis. What I found very interesting was you see that I had three groups, one group whom I called meditators who may be from any, you know, any denomination. And the other group was uh, remitting schizophrenics and the third group was a normal control group. Uh, normals and schizophrenics form a particular category who share certain basic, you know, qualities, whereas the meditators are distinct. Mm. So I found that all those variables which were of the POI, self-actualizing measure and the openness to inner experience, they clustered on the left side of the graph. With the meditators. With the meditators. And whereas the 16 normal personality factors, most of them, and the, uh, you know, Isings and the psychoticism, neuroticism, they clustered in the lower quadrant where schizophrenics were, remitting schizophrenic group clustered. So, it clearly shows that meditators were not somewhere located uh, between normals and psychotics as it was reported in one of the commission's report. Mm -hmm. You know, it's called GAP report, uh, which uh, examined uh, whether it forms a continuum, normal meditators, schizophrenics. They were not on a continuum, they were separate. Mm -hmm. That means meditators had a different kind of awareness which separated the normal and schizophrenics. It, it sounds like what you're saying is the meditators were healthier. Yeah, they were healthier. They were neither normal group nor the schizophrenic group. Mm -hmm. And another serendipitous finding I wa got was that 20 meditators I had, uh, they clustered into two groups, one with a majority of self-actualizing characteristics, the other one more with inner experience characteristics. And that fitted very well with, you know, Maslow's uh, description, you, if you remember, Maslow made a distinction between healthy self-actualizers and transcenders. Mm. He said uh, the healthy self-actualizers are the people who have a peak experience. After the peak experience, they involve in the society and do something for the society, you know, they go. Whereas the so-called transcenders or peakers, they may want to remain in that state of unitive consciousness. Uh, Maslow has clearly described this difference in his Father Reaches of Human Nature, which is the final book of him yep. pu published posthumously. Mm -hmm. So I had these two distinct group, so which gave me a sense that many meditators may want to remain inwardly. Some meditators, once they have that experience of self-awareness, will jump into society and do more of uh, social good. Some may want to remain within themselves. So, this is what I found. 
uh, on in my doctoral research. I, I think if you were to look at the lives of the great saints, you would yeah. find they also break down into these Exactly, groups. yes, yes. Mm -hmm. exactly. Some become ascetics and, and yeah. others are active in the world. Exactly. Building hospitals. Yeah, and educational institutions. Education. Yeah. yeah, so this that gave me a complete clarity to myself mm -hmm. uh, as to how it is possible that some will withdraw, some will, uh, you know, participate. Well, I would think, though, to begin with, when we talk about the psychology of meditation, <laughs> that w one of the issues is that there are so many different kinds of meditation. Yes. Uh, and so, so many different, very different practices that are labeled as meditation. Yeah. You see that uh, I must tell you that the earliest books uh, written by Arnstein on the psychology of consciousness and another on the psychology of meditation by Narano and Arnstein. Mm -hmm. I think it provides a fairly clear uh, grouping of uh, the variety of meditation uh, techniques. Mm. Uh, so, uh, and uh, another one I remember is Variety of Meditative Experiences by Daniel Goleman. Yeah, those were published back in 70s. You know, in Indian tradition, mm -hmm. uh, we, speak, so we speak of dhyana, we speak of upasana, and, uh, you know, we speak of vidya, uh, probably the word Vidya is associated in the Tantric tradition, for example, uh, quite as much as in the Upanishad the tradition also. So, we have these different types and uh, Dean Shapiro has uh, spoken about, uh, you know, uh, the zooming the lens and the wide angle lens to speak of the, you know, focal meditation and uh, that. All that is basically attentional deployment. Mm -hmm. uh, so that is one of the things uh, which, whether it is Indian, Sufi, or uh, whatever brand of meditation, that is one thing. Attentional deployment. I like that. Term. That is the word used by Dean Shapiro. I, mean, I was going to suggest that all meditation has in common that you sit still, but yeah. there's actually walking meditation. Yeah, but but actually what you are trying to do mm -hmm. in that meditation is important. Uh, are you? Uh, what are you trying to do? If you take the Yoga uh, Sutra, it is completely stilling the mind. Mm -hmm. Okay, you are not uh, doing anything else other than stilling the mind so that that witness consciousness manifests itself. Okay, but the other kinds of meditation can expand the field of awareness. Sometimes, you know, uh, when you ask the, the distinction between wide angle lens and the zoom lens, uh, you know, that is given there. Mm -hmm. That is one of the distinction made by Western psychologists in understanding. But most importantly, uh, when I think of psychology of meditation, I like uh, Arthur Dykeman's bimodal consciousness concept. Uh, probably you are aware 
uh, Arthur Dyckman, the psychiatrist yes. who did a lot of meditation, yes. he, he wrote uh, some chapter, you know, papers, uh, de-automatization and mystic experience, yes. and then bimodal consciousness. Yes, I read uh, those papers as an undergraduate yes. myself, and yeah. the privilege of interviewing Arthur Oh, Dyckman. that's that's great. So, I think I he has touched the uh, core of uh, the Yoga Sutras and other, uh, you know, practices very correctly because uh, the particularly his the distinction of action mode consciousness and the receptive mode consciousness mm -hmm. uh, is very important in understanding uh, the Vedanta or yoga or whatever you do because let's let me repeat that the distinction between action mode and receptive mode yes okay. because he says action mode consciousness is one type of engaging with the environment where you are motivated by survival needs and other desires. So what you are doing with the environment is you are manipulating the environment. And you, when you are manipulating the environment, your autonomic nervous system and the skeletal muscular system is also participating in that and your sympathetic system is more active and you are focusing your attention on a field of awareness, narrowing that and you are goal oriented, achievement oriented and all that. Yes. Okay. So what Dykeman has said is in meditation, or what you call meditation is to shift from the action mode to the receptive mode, where it is not manipulating the environment, it is receiving the environment. It is allowing. So the sensory system is more dominant and the parasympathetic system is uh, operating. And I think he says, whatever technique of meditation or the goal of meditation is to shift from the recept action mode to receptive mode. Mm -hmm. So, if you translate the idea of action mode to receptive mode into understand all these, you know, practices that we are doing, uh, whether uh, you say, you, you know, yama and niyama, that you are following in the Yoga Sutra or giving up attachment, giving up ahankara, uh, which I was discussing in the other interview. Yes. All that is actually, uh, or many practices are geared towards decreasing the action mode mm -hmm. and increasing the receptive mode. Uh, I, I give you a very simple example of, uh, you know, Suppose you want to reach, uh, you know, airport. Okay. Uh, so you you are driving the car. You are holding the you know steering wheel because you have to reach at a particular time. Your skeletal muscular system and the sympathetic system is uh, very naturally without uh, awareness. It has probably become tight and human because it's already time you have to reach the goal 
and uh, there are so many things on the sides uh, you may not notice mm -hmm. and uh, uh, you just go and after you reach finish your job and, and now you are not in a hurry then you are relaxed and while coming back you may notice so many things which you did not notice both the time it existed mm -hmm. This time you didn't notice, but that time when you are relaxed, probably you notice. But in all. each case, you're yeah. still driving the car. You are still driving the car, but you are in a different mode, different mm -hmm. way of engaging. Yeah. So, a, a person who starts practicing, as he matures in the practice, he engages till he is driving the car. He is still in the reality, but he is not in the action mode. He is in the receptive mode. Which means he has, he is not trying to achieve anything, not to reach a goal in a, in a desire fulfilling way. Mm -hmm. He is more receiving, uh, less of uh, dominating. I think that is one of the important insight I got from the Western psychological point of view about the meditation. Mm -hmm. Doesn't the Yoga Sutras huh. speak of achieving a state of samadhi? Yes. And then practicing something called samyama. Yes. Which is, to me that seems like something in the active mode where you're uh, attempting to merge with the object that you're contemplating and, and you may uh, at that point perform one of the cities. See, that actually uh, Siddhis or Samyama, they all cannot come if you are after them. Mm -hmm. That's what the tradition says. Uh -huh. So, you know, you have to give up because as long as the striving is there, the I want to achieve that, the, it is itself is a block. Uh -huh. So, the less of the I striving happens, more of letting go happens. There is a more, you are connecting, the consciousness is expanding, you are connecting. A Siddhi, word Siddhi, may look as though it's an achievement uh, with effort, but in reality, it is not an achievement with effort. It is opening up your awareness to a dimension where you become an instrument to receive certain things or you receive certain capacities which is which is not effortful mm -hmm. so i think uh, many people uh, look at it from the action mode of uh, trying to achieve yeah. i think it, in my understanding uh, I, I, it is more a matter of receptive mode than an action but mode. I think I understand what you're saying, but isn't it also the case that perhaps even before one begins the meditative practice, you at least set an intention that in this practice I am going to practice samyama? Actually, that uh, is a higher stage in the path of Yoga Sutra. Yeah. By then, you have already done sufficiently what is called Yama Niyama, where you have purified yourself, you know, your mind from all strivings. Mm -hmm. all the the so-called Yama Niyama are meant to, you know, purify your intentions. 
and open up your consciousness to a higher dimension and you know uh, reduce your identity associated with many desires psychosocial and uh, as you move on the samyama is is and is i think i have i cannot claim i have reached the samyama or i have done that so i am speaking after reading so many things yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. my personal thing mm -hmm. but i still think yeah. that uh, uh, you know samyama is a state of awareness uh, which can happen uh, as you let go yourself and open up it is not is striving from the action mode. It sounds almost like being in the flow. Yeah, it is something like that. It is not a question of becoming. Mm -hmm. It is not a becoming something, achieving something. Now, what is, what practice, how you meditate, how you practice, depends upon the belief system you carry. Okay. What is a belief system? whether your belief system is emerging from the Yoga Sutra, which has its own uh, understanding of the mind and the found, you know, philosophy of Sankhya, uh, where it speaks of Guna and uh, the Prakriti and Purusha, or whether you are a Vedantin, where you speak of Brahman, or you are a Sufi, coming from a Sufi background, or do you come from a esoteric Christian tradition or a Jewish tradition? See, that creates some kind of a context for you. Or you, are you practicing transcendental meditation? What for you are practicing? Do you want to relieve stress? Is that your goal? Do you want to achieve Siddhi? That's your goal. Do you, do you want to realize Atman and Brahman identity? Is that your goal? Or, or do you want to, you know, remove your uh, uh, health problems? Is that your goal? Mm -hmm. uh, so when, and are you practicing alone? Do you, pra do you have a community of people who support your practice? Do you have a map of the stages you want to achieve? See, and uh, when you start practicing, do you really follow the instruction given by the instructor? Or do you add something to it based on your own perception or what you have learned somewhere else? Mm. All these are uh, finally determining uh, what kind of uh, experience you have. Yes. That is why you see, uh, meditation research when it happened in the United States, particularly, you know, Benson and Wallace who investigated transcendental meditation, they called it relaxation response, yes. right? So relaxation response is again a context. Yeah. You are looking for relaxation. Yeah. You are not looking for self-realization. Yeah. That, uh, so, uh, so For many in, people, relaxation is an enormous achievement. Yeah, that is right. Mm -hmm. So, so now you see when you speak of psychology of meditation, mm -hmm. uh, I understand the psychology of meditation in this sense. Yes, in the sense of what you are trying to do. You can look at 
yoga or any kind of meditation from a humanistic perspective behavioristic angle psychoanalytical or neuropsychological but yoga psychology is a different story altogether yoga has its own understanding the world in the indian tradition so it has a way of understanding mental functions yoga comes from the same root as our english word yoke yeah it but means union yeah union union with what if you believe in uh, god shiva or vishnu then you want to unite with shiva and vishnu but if you believe in brahman parabrahman do you want to unite with parabrahman so again there is a context for your experience mm-hmm. so but actually transcendence as i have read in the indian tradition is something to go beyond all these contexts created by the mind mm-hmm. so i'm sure you must have come across and read that book Uh, kill the buddha if you come across oh, yes. on the way if you see the buddha if on you, the road kill him kill him <laughs> because seeing buddha is also a level of context mm. so that is the idea of going beyond the real transcendence otherwise the meditative experiences are happening within the broader context of your own mind so what you're saying is that we have the psychology of yoga in other words we can look at yoga from any perspective exactly but yoga psychology itself is to move beyond all fluctuations of the mind all concepts yes yes that is the whole point and that is missing in the contemporary efforts to study yoga the potential exists for people to become explorers of uh realms that that exist realms that we uh, interface with but which of which we're barely aware yeah exactly that is what that is how the whole of indian tradition has come the mythology that we have it is partly through experience probably partly introvert with certain imagination it is hard to differentiate yes but you if you go to india and you know spend time reading the first person accounts of people who have uh, you know autobiographies or the people who went to some great masters how they met them and all that you will see how those great masters have operated in the universe it's unbelievable you know it's it's uh, those things uh, which i have read it's incredible but if i want to speak with a highly empirically oriented psychologist he would think that i should be sent back to the institute where yes, i studied I, I, i totally understand <laughs> and, and yeah. i have trouble believing things and i'm very open minded yeah I, but for example there one reads in the literature about uh-huh. advanced beings who have lived 2500 years or yes we lived and what is intriguing or what is most important from, from in my observation is you see if an indian uh, believes in this or comes up with these things you can say it's cultural 
because you have that tradition. Yes. What we need to understand is if a traditional scholar in the Indian tradition who has studied Vedas, Upanishads or Yoga, if he speaks about it, then you can brand him and probably say he is, he is traditional, he has this belief system, he is telling this uh, and you can probably dismiss him. But when, uh, you know, biologists and the uh, physicists and, uh, uh, you know, people in other fields, when they experience this phenomena in their profession and when they write books and when they write the books, uh, yeah, I read another book, uh, Reconnection. Mm -hmm. He is a chiropractor who got suddenly certain energy, healing energies. Uh, I've forgotten the author's name. Uh, he has written a book called Reconnection where he narrates autobiographically how he got into all those energies, how he used to heal the people, how he helped, you know, uh, mentally retarded children and others. Yeah. And when I read all such books, I cannot close my eyes and say, I cannot simply dismiss they are all psychotic or regressive or, you know, they are this. They are people who have accomplished something socially, materially, and these things have happened to them and they have tried best to critically and document, authenticate it. Mm -hmm. So, we, what I feel, it is high time that the scientific community uh, tries to bring together you the, all the evidences on the one hand which ex people are reporting here because I think when Maslow did his research on peak experiences many people were hesitant to even share those things he, he speaks about it so now there are so many who have said and we have all the documents of 5,000 or 10,000. We have all kinds of literature of mystical, spiritual phenomena. Somewhere we should bring them. We should try to synthesize it. We should systematize it, classify it, so that, you know, human consciousness can go to another level. I am totally in favor. Of, yes. In fact, that's really what this video series is all about. <laughs> and what you're suggesting is that meditation, one of the things it, it does is it stops that chatter, 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 chatter of the mind. And opens up the heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it opens up the heart. You know, Anahata Chakra has to open. What I see is majority of the critical mass of people seem to be operating only at the Muladhara, Swadhisthana and the Manipura. Mm -hmm. the, lower the, the lower chakras. Yeah. It is the lack of opening of the higher chakras, Anahata and all that. That is the problem. But India has a tradition where we have many means of keeping the higher chakras active. Uh, through, you know, the bhakti, uh, bhajan, kirtan, you know, uh, mantra, uh, then, uh, you know, all the yantras and other things, and then also participating, uh, community living, mm. trying to extend to others, reaching out, uh, not limiting the ego boundaries, but expanding the ego boundaries, relationship orientation. See, this is all psychology.
basically okay but they did not say it is all psychology but they developed some mechanisms mm -hmm. of keeping this higher consciousness active that is why an indian can easily receive these things uh, that's that's the difference if i can say well, would, would you say kiran that uh, in, in academic Huh. psychology in India or elsewhere that the these concepts the anahata the huh. chakras the the nadis the energy flows yes uh, are they uh, being looked at seriously where where are they where do you find them in the mainstream book you don't even if you take a cognitive psychology book you don't find anything on intuition yeah. see Uh, intuition is not uh, examined seriously, and uh, you know nowadays the general psychology book, introductory psychology books, speaks of altered states of consciousness. You look into the chapter; it will speak only in terms of the biological rhythms or the brain, alpha, beta, theta, you know those uh, uh, waves. Uh, but Uh, as i read more as i understand myself more and others i see that you know these are all planes of awareness basically <laughs> and a critical mass of people when their plane of awareness shifts from the lower chakra to the higher chakra there is a better prospect for humanity the love and everything will come from the anahata but most people are stuck with manipura which is supposed to be center for power and control dominance you see mm -hmm. so you look at the things happening around and uh, it is all the manipura level operations mm -hmm. you know i've been talking about these things uh, throughout my professional career you find it in in my first book written in 1970 yeah yeah the roots of consciousness but i think what i hear you saying is that this is the future of psychology yeah it should be the future of psychology and of course now energy psychology and energy medicine which is coming up yes. and uh, you know positive psychology uh, it is moving uh, though in that direction but it has not gone beyond to towards the higher chakras mm -hmm. though there is of course uh, some uh, hints of that coming here and there from some people uh, so i see that uh you know if i want to compare in a very gross level uh, the indian tradition because of its rootedness in the transcendental you know in the highest sahasrara our rishis were able to create a society where they developed mechanisms to keep uh, awakening of the higher chakras and made that part of the psyche of people so indian mind can easily appreciate the religious and the spiritual and uh, whether they have studied anything of this whether they are illiterates or literates they are able to pick up these things easily whereas in the europe and the western world somewhere when the naturalism came up in the ancient greek in the 700 to 500 bce when uh, thales uh, started naturalism and natural philosophy 
and uh, the Greek tradition of spirituality, belief in, uh, you know, oracles and uh, those things uh, were, re you know, rejected. And uh, I think that is the crucial historical turning point where the Western European globe as a whole became dominated in the consciousness the divergence of east and west yes it, i think that dominated the consciousness for a long time and that is where the divergence happened india has kept alive that consciousness and if i look today in the last few years i see that the indian psyche is slowly moving towards the lower chakras <laughs> you know it is going to the sensate level yes uh, i'll give an example Do, uh, back in uh, 1990 when i came uh, from mysore to san francisco that is my first uh, visit outside the country mm. i used to see a delhi in every corner where they sell, you know, basic uh, uh, things like uh, bakery stuff, milk, uh, you know, some alcohol and uh, other basic needs along with some newspaper and such things. Okay, I used to see that in many corners here mm -hmm. and there. A little market. A little, little market, Delhi, that's, mm -hmm. that was called. So I remembered in India, we had we have some small uh, places of worship it may be a small altar a small temple or a big uh, tree where uh, you know you uh, tree itself is worshiped uh, you have that type of places of worship so that was a contrast to me between mysore and san francisco mm -hmm. But today, as I reflect upon, I see that in the Bay Area, there are more, shower, more temples, more ashrams uh, in the yoga 30 years and more yoga classes, more yoga classes. <laughs> but back in India, you go, you have more uh, liquor shops around, less number of worship places more, uh, you know, supermarkets. Uh, if there is a main street, every corner house, they are building uh, uh, shops and renting it out. Uh, and you are, uh, the consumerism is increasing every day there. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is a contrast I see uh, between uh, the India, the Mysore and uh, San Francisco, for example, where the sensate attitude, you know, earlier in India, uh, people would always eat at home. Uh, you know, eating on the street too frequently was not there. So, so for better or worse, it sounds like you're, you're suggesting that, that East and West are merging. Yes, they are merging. It's not always positive, but the potential is, is might be there for for a brilliant new synthesis. It is possible. Uh, uh, that synthesis will take a long time because, you see, simultaneously people have different planes of consciousness. If I have to use chakras as a model, mm -hmm. 
there are people who are dominated by Muladhara, there are people dominated by Swadhisthana, Manipura, and like that. Mm -hmm. So the, you know, the, the density distribution of people with a particular plane of consciousness will vary, okay? Uh, so you find the spiritual people in India, you find spiritual people in United States. You find people who are after materialism in India, you find them here. But the number of people, uh, the critical mass could vary, okay? Now it is slowly changing. I recently read a paper on well-being and happiness research where one of the authors speaks of global supermarket. You know, cultural, global cultural supermarket. Yeah. So that means the whole world, we have this. The business culture, the uh, consumerism. Is that, not only that, what, what that author says is people in different, today the culture doesn't mean in a geographical localized sense. The culture has a broader meaning where what type of thinking possibilities exist in the world? Because uh, the electronic media, you know, tour and travel, it has exposed people all around the world. So somebody sitting back in a village in my hometown may like rap music. Somebody sitting in the United States may like the classical music of the Indian tradition. Somebody may like yoga, somebody may like uh, some other skating or skiing, or somebody may like this. So you see, people may live anywhere, but what they want and what they look for, what, how they, what is their desire, what they want to do, now there are so many possibilities. So it is a global cultural supermarket where you choose whatever you want. So people, a new kind of people will emerge irrespective of uh, whether you are American or a German or British or Ceylonian or Iranian or whoever it is. What is your consciousness level? You, you know, our, this video right now is part of that global supermarket. People all over the world have, have an opportunity to engage in this conversation. Yes. And, and they will because people post comments and occasionally lengthy discussions amongst, amongst the commenters. And my hope is that it leads to a, uh, advances in the psychology of meditation, the psychology of consciousness, and ultimately, uh, my hope is that it leads to uh, a movement toward global enlightenment. Exactly, that's what's happening, but uh, where it is happening, finally, where it gets dominated, who will do, only future can tell. That's but not for us to say. <laughs> yeah, not for us to say. But we are definitely moving in the direction. Because uh, otherwise, I don't think I and you would be sitting across here talking about all these things. Well, we talked about the Bhagavad Gita, Gita in yes. the first interview. The idea of, uh, you know, fulfilling one's dharma. Yeah. Acting in accordance with the, one's deepest nature and being unattached to the consequences. Exactly. So we don't know. Uh, I was brought here by some forces through the instrument of some people 
So I'm here, I'm talking to you. I, I never anticipated this meeting. I never thought about it. I never expected this. It has happened. So it's all a movement in rising the consciousness level of people around. That's how I see it. Kiran Kumar Salagami, I'm very grateful that you came to Albuquerque. I'm delighted to have shared these four interviews with you. I think we, uh, we've had an opportunity to impart a, a, a great deal of wisdom and cultural knowledge uh, with our viewers worldwide. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much for your efforts to spread these ideas. I hope the viewers will enjoy all this conversation. Thank you very much again. Namaste. Namaste. Yeah. And thank you for being with us.